Today's dead idea? Cuneiform, the world's oldest writing system, bringing us all the way back to the world's oldest known civilization, the ancient Sumerians, whom we wouldn't even know existed were it not for cuneiform tablets. And that's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who has invented a brilliant system of wedges inscribed into clay to remind me when to take out the trash. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. How do you stick that to a refrigerator? What did you say? How do you stick that to a refrigerator, the clay tablet? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I am BT Newberg. You can call me Brandon. With me today are my co-hosts, Anna. Sorry if I ramble. I don't mean to just keep babble on. <laughs> uh, yeah. On. And Nick. You know, I've taken lots of notes for this episode. I've done a bunch of research, but on the way over, I just dropped them and they shattered. <laughs> oh, shit. Too bad. <laughs> we'll never know what the 15th commandment of Nick nope. was. <laughs> if only we had some more easily portable system of notation. It'll never happen. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. Um. Today is a special day for several reasons. First of all, we have a new podcasting dungeon. Yes, we are no longer recording with the bedroom covered in blankets. We've got an actual room dedicated to it with 200 foam tiles on the walls that I managed to staple literally everywhere. (laughs) Podcast bunker. Yeah. Yeah, podcast bunker. The other reason that today is special is because Nick was just recently knighted as a luthier. Congratulations, Nick. Well, thank you. Yes. And a luthier is? Uh, Someone who fixes or repairs or builds pretty much anything with strings. Any kind of box of wood with guts strung across it. Hmm. Such as violins. In this particular instance, yes. yes. And guitars and stuff like that. String instruments. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Anyway, today kicks off our new epic series on cuneiform, the world's oldest known form of writing. It's the one written with a stylus impressed into a clay tablet, and it kind of looks like chicken scratchings if written quickly, or like a series of wedges and sometimes dots if written carefully like calligraphy. Or as our good friend Max put it, Oh, yeah, it's the one that looks like golf tees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. I've never true. seen the quick written version, chicken scratch version. I'm kind yeah, of curious about it's that. It's kind of cool, yeah. Um, it's hard to tell that it's even writing. You would know if you knew. Sure. Yeah. It's like inverted Braille. I mean, it's like any of us who just, you know, write Roman alphabet, but just quickly. I mean, just, it looks like crap. Anyway. If you want to see any of that, we'll have lots of pics up at our website at www.deadideas.net. And we also have a custom-generated map of ancient Sumeria by our very own in-house cartographer and recent co-host on the Balkans episode last series, Adam McKithern. Thank you, Adam. Nice. So the time period we are exploring is roughly 3000 BCE, or in other words, five millennia ago in ancient Mesopotamia, in the Fertile Crescent region between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, more or less in the region of modern Iraq. The people that we'll be focusing on most, today at least, are the ancient Sumerians, which, if you know your H.P. Lovecraft, most of the demon names come from gods of the Sumerians and other sort of descendant Mesopotamian cultures. 
and we will be talking about other Mesopotamian peoples as well who used cuneiform, like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and so on, as we go through the series. And it's really often quite hard to disentangle them all because their cultures shared a lot, and also scholars typically write in this frustratingly vague way that just lumps all of them together. You don't know what period they're talking about. Yeah, they're just I like noticed that as yeah, well. Like they're all it was bundled a mess- together in Civ too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're playing as Babylon, so the most recent Civ you can play as Sumeria. Really? really? Yes. Separate from the Babylonians. Separate yeah. So yeah. who who leads them? Who's their leader? If uh it's not? Gilgamesh, I think. Seriously. Oh, cool. I think so. Um or is it Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Yeah, the only straight-up Sumerian name I can think of, really. <laughs> there were a lot, but not that there many were, that but... are famous. Uh, yeah, so a lot of what we talk about could apply to like any time be- across several millennia, <laughs> really. With... Um, but we'll do our best to sort things out. Yeah. Yeah. Other fun fact is, there, my understanding is, completely unrelated languages. That the later versions, the Babylonian and Akkadian versions, were Semitic and actual Sumerian... Is un- Nobody has any idea. Right. It's unrelated to anything else that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's but all right. written in cuneiform, I assume. That's correct. And interestingly, um, cuneiform, we're actually going to get into this in a bit, but um, cuneiform is brilliantly designed for Sumerian. It has to be kind of shoehorned into Akkadian. That's certainly exactly what yeah. I was wondering about. Yeah. Because I think the sounds would be... Yep. 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 So that was a key clue of how they knew that the Sumerians were the older of the two huh. cultures. Okay, so anyway, um, we didn't even know that the Sumerians existed until we started deciphering the cuneiform tablets that were that we were finding. And that is a fascinating story, um, which basically is what we were just starting to talk about. So let's talk about that now. So people have been turning up these tablets since forever, basically, but we couldn't decipher them until relatively recently. Um, started kind of in the 18th century and then really picked up in the 19th century. Scholars thought that they were trying to read um, the writing of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, whom they knew from the Bible. And the field to this day is often still called Assyriology. Seriously? Yep. Yep. More typically now um, Near Eastern studies, but Assyriologist is still kind of a term. Assyriologist? Yeah. Assyriously. (laughs) <laughs> I'm a little too slow sometimes. You guys outclass me. Was... I, I'm I'm behind on my experience points because I that damn dual classing. Yeah, you didn't take your level in punning that you yeah. really should have. Or... I, I, I forgot that feat. Yeah, on my feat tree. Yeah. So anyway, they were right. trying to read the the writing of these biblical peoples, and they started to make a little bit of progress. And eventually, they reached a point where they could kind of sort of understand parts of it. But they kept running into this weird problem where there would be these whole sentences or even whole tablets that when they applied what they knew thus far would basically come out as gobbledygook. It was kind of like if you load a web page and it just doesn't load and you get like the back end HTML code or something and you're just like, what the hell, right? And I'm assuming that what they knew thus far was trying to work backwards from principles of other Semitic languages to get something like Babylonian or Akkadian. I know that's definitely part of it. I don't know all their techniques that they did. Um, but yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so it was like, what the hell, right? Because they could read like half of it and the other half was just completely just gobbledygook. So only very gradually over quite some time and through the hunches of many different scholars did it finally dawn on them that what they were trying to read was actually two completely different languages right. with the mm-hmm. same writing system. The same way that you have like 
English written in the Roman alphabet and like Vietnamese written in the Roman alphabet, even though they're completely unrelated, right? And you need to add lots of crazy diacritical marks for Vietnamese to work. Correct. Kind of like yeah. what I'm assuming you're going to say with the Babylonian. Gotta hack this thing. Yeah, exactly. Gotta hack it. So anyway, they could tell that one seemed to be older than the other because the writing system, as I mentioned earlier, was better suited for it. It just seemed to be designed for it, whereas the younger of the two required adaptations to make it fit the grammar. And I, I can't tell you exactly what those adaptations were. I don't think there were diacritical marks specifically, but I think words were used to sort of represent the grammatical particles and things in different ways. Huh. I think. That's my understanding. I but really want to see a visual of this now. It was, it was, yeah. You'd have to get pretty deep into the linguistics of it for that, but... Also, one of them, the much older one, seemed to be accorded higher prestige and quoted with reverence by the younger one, mm -hmm. occupying a cultural position basically similar to what Latin occupies today. So these two languages really seem to reflect a younger people that had taken over the region and adopted the local writing system while looking back on that older people the way that medieval and Renaissance cultures looked back on the Roman Empire. Dolor Ipsum. Wow, that sounds important. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, that younger people are who we now call the Akkadians, who spoke a Semitic language called Akkadian, like you were saying. Semitic being like like Hebrew and Arabic. Those right, are all the most of the famous ones. Yeah, yeah, most of the Near Eastern languages we're familiar with now are Semitic. Et yep. in Akkadia ego. <laughs> Um, and the grammar of it feels a little bit wrangled and shoehorned into the cuneiform writing system. The older people, whom we now call the Sumerians, spoke a language unrelated to anything else that we know of today, but feels so natural when written in cuneiform that it seems most likely designed for it. So that was a very, I think, probably really amazing you know, like, whoa, kind of realization moment in the, in the history of this decipherment, I think. Yeah, you know, we need like, to go deeper. Because, you know, we had no idea that the Sumerians even existed, and then you find out they're the oldest civilization on in, that ever was, that ever yeah, was so far about. as we know. Yeah, and it's like, whoa. <laughs> and I'm guessing even probably the Latin to English thing isn't uh -huh. that, isn't as big a stretch just because... English is so close to Latin, linguistically speaking, that mm. the ideas of how to make sounds aren't all that different. Yeah. Um, just another much more local analogy, and you know, one of the big things in Ataturk's reforms was trying to make the Turkish alphabet phonetic okay. by using the Roman alphabet, when previously it had all been written in Arabic, which mm -hmm. was designed for a Semitic language, mm -hmm. and worked really badly with Turkish, mm. which was agglutinative and all full of vowels and had vowel harmony and weird things that... Okay a language that had none huh. worked really badly with, and they had to do all kinds of crazy shoehorning kind of like and and imagining the, happened with Akkadian. And, and somehow the Roman Spain. alphabet worked better? Yes, actually. Really? Huh. Well, it's a whole set of alphabets. You've got vowels, you can... Okay, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he... Actually, the Tur you could argue Turkish is its own alphabet, or probably Vietnamese, too. They made so many changes with sure. that to make it phonetic in the modern era. That yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So anyway, thanks to finding all these um, dried clay tablets, we now know about the oldest civilization in the world that we wouldn't otherwise have even a clue that they existed. I mean, how, 
how crazy is that? That's, I don't know. It just, <laughs> I'm kind of geeking out a lot on this, but it's, <laughs> it's amazing. It is cool. It's amazing. I mean, we, we now know as much or more about Sumer as, as we do about ancient Greece, which is just ridiculous. Because so, they found a lot of these tablets. Like something like half a million tablets yeah. to date, something like that. And um, I'm sure you'll get to this, but everything from poetry to math homework. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like student, yeah. students' exercises and yeah. yeah. All, glossaries, all kinds of things. This is my creative writing assignment. What would happen if we were discovered? What would you like to have recorded if you were found 3,000 years later? You're not that far off. And we'll get to things like that in our next episode when we talk about scribe warts. <laughs> I was hoping the homework would come up. Yes. So anyway, we, we know things like we know their taste in beer, which had a hint of date honey. We know their sexual innuendos. He is lettuce sprouting by the river means basically he's getting a hard on. <laughs> yeah. That's we even Which also poetic. connects with beer, which is made from lettuce. You know. <laughs> oh lettuce. I thought you said lead us. Oh wait, lettuce sprouting by the river? I heard yes. lettuce too. Yeah. yeah he lettuce? is lettuce, sprouting lettuce, lettuce yeah. like green lettuce sprouting by the river. Nothing implies, you know. Well, it, Firm virility like lettuce. Well, well, the, the kind of like um, flowery round head is kind of like the um, like pubic hair. Man, what kind of lettuce they got? <laughs> you have to have lettuce know, in a bolt. It, it does have a big stalk that I goes up. Yeah, and... imagine it has a stalk. Yeah. Yeah. You so, usually cut it down by that point because it makes the rest of the plant bitter. But yeah, so yeah we, I guess I can see it. So we know things like that. We even know what they called a woman's monthly menstruation, which was getting hit by the weapon. Accurate. <laughs> yeah, that became Anna's favorite phrase for a long time after she learned that. Quite accurate. I love she it. She said bitterly. So anyway, yeah, we'll be doing a whole episode just on food because we know so much about that or more than I ever thought we would know. And we'll also do a whole episode just on their love lives, if uh, if our plans work out. We know more about the Sumerians than we do about the Celtic or the Germanic peoples north of the Roman Empire, and way more about them than, say, somebody like the Mitanni, which was a Middle Eastern culture, about which we still know absolutely nothing except for they were called the, the Mitanni. Mitanni. That's all we know. <laughs> Sorry, so. now I'm just imagining some long future alien archaeologists wondering about the weird paucity of records in 21st century Earth and then suddenly figuring out how to get the access the internet. <laughs> right. Their faces yeah. suddenly growing ashy. <laughs> oh my god. As they get consumed by like, Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, and it's like 4chan. It Were these well people designed. even a literate culture? All their written records start to disappear. Oh my god. <laughs> what was the significance of this feline creature? Why do they keep occurring? And <laughs> Were they worshipping them? Right. Yeah, so like 5,000 years later, we can read the Sumerians' love letters, their Snapchats, their text messages, everything that they ever did. We can read it in their own words. I mean, how cool is that? Well, they're probably embarrassed from beyond the grave. Yeah, yeah I would be. They said that my sexting on this clay tablet would disintegrate as soon as I passed it along. <laughs> they were keeping records. They lied. <laughs> It does make me wonder who is going to be able to read our culture in the future, like yeah. you were saying. I mean, like 5,000 years from now, are we going to, are, you know, are we going to be able to read even one of our books? Because, I mean, the paper is not going to be there. 
that's going to be disintegrated, right? But even paper lasts longer than what we do now. Now yeah. we have like USB and, you know, that, that's, that's just like outdated in like five years. You can't read it already, mm-hmm. you know? So if you don't keep copying it over to the latest medium, it's just going to be gone. If we ever had like a disaster that, you know, took down the, you know, our infrastructure or something, like where would it all go? Anna's mom actually spends kind of a lot of time legit in her professional life worrying about this as an archivist. Really? Yeah. I don't have anything to add to that, but suffice to say, uh, yeah, the keeping up with digital uh, forms of preservation as well as what you do with your hard copies has been something she's been working on for a while. Huh? Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Hopefully with the help of her and people like her, we can avoid becoming the next Mitani. Well, eventually the sun will just devour us, thank well, God. But... yes, but... <laughs> so anyway, that's what I find so amazing about cuneiform and why I'm geeking out so much. In stark contrast to this picture, just painted of our potential evaporation of history, right, that she's trying to avoid, the world of ancient Sumer is alive today in full color thanks to cuneiform. And so that's going to be a major focus of this series, the wealth of information and nuanced texture that we get communicated through these tablets, which bring alive the most ancient of ancient civilizations. And when I say civilization, I should define that because I I don't mean like civilized versus barbaric. I mean cityized, civil, yeah, like civic, like a city building culture. Yes, exactly. Somewhere where there's a sewer back in Yeah. So it's the, it's the world's oldest cityized culture. And um, in case you can't tell, this first episode is going to be a lot of like nerdery about just how awesome cuneiform is. And um, we're going to get to cuneiform itself today. But first, I want to drive home the significance of it with um, something that I find really fascinating. And that is the process of how in, like the influence of technology tends to kind of facilitate the sense of a village-level society no matter how big society gets, which is really kind of a weird quirk of human psychology and overcoming the sort of... It's like hacking human psychology, basically. So, I mean, what I'm talking about is... So our species obviously evolved in really small groups, you know, like family level Mm -hmm. or... And then, you know, maybe like small village level. And you knew everybody. You could keep track of everybody's reputation and you, your morality is kind of, your natural morality that we're all inborn with kind of cues off of knowing that other people are watching and that if you do something bad, they're going to find out about it and not trust you. And so you better just pretty much follow the rules. Right. For the listeners, Brandon and I are from small towns. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we have deep experience with this, right? Mm-hmm. But when society gets to the size that you can't keep track of everybody and know their reputations individually, then it starts to feel anonymous and like nobody's watching. And that's when things start to break down in terms of like social mores and whatnot. For the listeners, Brenda and I are not going back to small towns. <laughs> <laughs> I like my anonymity. <laughs> but so, so technology throughout history has often been the means by which we allow society to get bigger and yet feel again like a village-level society. And we really are witnessing a major, major transition point in that right now with social media. Because I remember when I was in high school, and we had the internet, but it was like internet 1.0. You know, it wasn't like anything interactive with other people. And I felt really freaking alienated. 
And I think a lot of my generation, just that was kind of what was in the air. You know, I was especially alienated being in a tiny town that I hated. But, you know, I mean, we were listening to Nirvana and Soundgarden and all that, right? <laughs> the age of new metal. Um... Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people were really just kind of disconnected and alienated and expressing their frustration that way. And it seemed like the very next kind of generation that came after that, there was like Internet 2.0, social media, and a sense of more of like connection and like technology was helping rather than, you know, driving people further apart. And I, you know, there's something to that, I think, you know, and that's been, that keeps happening throughout history. I mean, before the internet, the last big one that I would say would be probably the printing press. And before that, the invention of writing, probably. And so that's what we're talking about today. You know, I don't know. I find that kind of interesting. We sort of uh, stumbled onto an acceleration point. Just exactly. Just of living right now. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm wondering whether to bring up telephones in the interstate highway system, I kind of too, wondered but... if you were going to, yeah. Yeah, things like that, too. As an actual network. Oh, yeah, tele- telephones, it yes. It's a network, but yeah. So anyway, writing was the original revolution in communications technology, right? And with writing, you suddenly, you could communicate with someone who was distant, and you didn't have to be face-to-face with them or face-to-face by proxy via a messenger who could easily misremember your words or theirs, but you could actually communicate with a distant person and get their actual words, you know, in writing and know that it was correct. And if it would be as if you were, you know, they were there in the room with you, I mean, compared to what you had before, right? This is suddenly making me imagine, like, iPhone autocorrect as this little (laughs) invisible unseen servant thing like from D&D but dressed up all like a Sumerian scribe getting shit wrong as he writes this down to instantly teleport it to the person at the phone hundreds of miles away like right. makes me like smartphones way better <laughs> why does it keep doing that god no yeah. no so so we're going to be talking about our um, Bronze Age series today and uh, okay Googles <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, how magical would that be the first time that you could actually communicate with somebody by letter? That would be like a breakthrough moment, kind of like the generation right after mine, where instead of like listening to Nirvana and painting dicks on the wall everywhere, (laughs) you could actually like (laughs) sprouting (laughs) lettuce on the wall everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you could actually communicate. I mean, that would be amazing. So here's an example of an actual letter from ancient Mesopotamia. Um, There is uh, this amazing archive that was discovered at a place called Mari, which is in the far northwest end of the Fertile Crescent. And uh, it has all these letters preserved. And so we're going to be reading a lot of these throughout the series. Um, Now, writing from this time period is, of course, pretty much the exclusive province of the wealthy and the privileged. So when we read these letters, we're mainly getting an elite um, and somewhat formal view. But you can also... Here, the very down-to-earth and almost Skype-like or FaceTime-like kind of feeling in it. Put your father on! Put your father... No, he <laughs> wandered off. Right. Who's at the door? Yeah. Okay, so, so here's the letter. Hamisuri told me you had a celebration, yet no one paid you attention. How is this possible? For myself, I certainly want to pay attention to you. So no one pays you attention? All right, then. When I myself come, you will see how I will treat anyone who pays you no attention. I mean, that's just like, it's like getting right into a text message series, Is this right? written to a middle school girl? <laughs> it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Is there any sort of diacritical mark that indicates sarcasm? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. 
cuneiform smileys or emoticons, right? (laughs) I mean, you can feel the, oh, no, you didn't kind of, you know, quality to it. It's kind of cool. Is this the text to the dog? The dog misses you. Yes, God. (laughs) (laughs) This is is actually a husband writing to his wife. And um, so letters were a common way to keep in touch while the husband was away traveling, which happened a lot because war was a thing. Here's another from the same couple, this time regarding some argument or spate between them. And the wife, whose name is Iltani, is writing to her husband this time. She says, My lord, meaning her husband, wrote this to me about releasing the cattle, sheep, and donkeys of Tazabru. So this is like in the email where you like do the you know, yeah. quote. You know. If you do not release the cattle, sheep, and donkeys, I will cut you up into 12 pieces. <laughs> That's highly specific. This yeah. is what this is what my lord wrote to me. Why would my lord threaten to end my life? Yesterday I told my lord, for a while now his own shepherds have kept his cattle and sheep that he is grazing in Yasibatam, which was Iltani's land, um, the wife's land. Mm-hmm. This is what I told my lord. My lord now should write to have the cattle and sheep taken out from Yasibatam. Had I taken any of the cattle and sheep, my lord should impose punishment on me. Would I, without my lord's permission, lay hand to take anything? Why would my lord threaten to end my life? So he's saying, leave them, don't touch them, don't don't do anything. Now all of a sudden it's like, why haven't you done this? And I'm like, I don't go into your room and release your sheep. I mean, I love it because you could just you can almost hear in your head the neighbors calling nine one one. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, oh, they're doing it again. <laughs> also, sounds kind of weirdly like back to our Irish epic series where hmm. uh-huh. the whole time is that how you'd say it? Uh huh. Was basically started by a husband and wife arguing over their se- oh right separate property sheep cattle and yes the Toinbolquolni I think is I wasn't even going to go into that... the Polni part yeah and... yeah. Exactly. And so I can't quite work out exactly the details of their situation, but you can definitely hear the feeling, right? But, I mean, it's clearly that the the husband is like, woman, I swear, you know? <laughs> I'm just also always kind of surprised in ancient cattle-based societies how much shared bank accounts weren't really a thing and or pastures. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some interesting stuff yeah. about um, what women get to keep in ancient Samaria. I mean, they had their own seals so they could... Um, sign documents and things. <laughs> I mean, like a cylinder seal. Highbrow right? comedy. <laughs> this is what you, you can edit for. that out. Yes. Yeah. No. There's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff, including, and I hope I, I definitely want to get to this in a different series. Something called something that I call a business nun. It was a particular what? kind of nun called a nadi two, that was. Uh, if not celibate exactly, they were forbidden to have children. They were married to a deity, but they were known for making a whole lot of business transactions. We found a lot of receipts with their names on it. Huh. And so there's some interesting speculation about, like, were women the primary business movers and shakers of ancient Samaria? It was really interesting. Business nuns. Business nuns. Married to fish god. Business nuns. Yeah, so we'll get into that. We'll get into that. So anyway, I think I've completed my geek out enough for now, probably. For the rest of this episode, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the development of uh, Sumer for context, and then the development of cuneiform writing in Sumer, 
which kind of it went hand, hand in hand the cityization of sumerian culture and the development of writing mm-hmm. and then in future episodes we're going to go deep deep into the times we'll have some role-playing game episodes again yeah. to really kind of immerse you in the culture and stuff and we'll hear stories and poetry even some ancient slam battles Ooh. yes Snap. yes and who knows what else okay so the history of ancient sumer so we can start with the question where did the sumerians come from and the answer is nobody knows. I'm assuming the Hollow Earth. <laughs> the Hollow Earth. The Golga French and Bee Ark. <laughs> there are theories abound, one of which must is now the Hollow Earth. <laughs> We've just contributed that. And it's it's pretty much just, you know, whatever you want whatever your pet theory is. So I mean that's kind of unequal footing. I mean, it's but... a long way from Atlantis. Everyone knows the Egyptians came from there, but I think the Sumer <laughs> is easier for them just to crawl up from the holes through like Tibet and yeah. Mosian West. Lemuria. <laughs> So some people think that they were the indigenous people of the region, which is always kind of a cop-out theory, in my opinion, because nobody's ever indigenous to a region. It's just you can't remember back a time before you were there. So anyway, um, others think that they came in from somewhere in or beyond the Zagros Mountains to the northeast, which is kind of where um, that rugged Persia region yeah, is. Yeah, modern day Iran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which makes some sense, at least insofar as that is how a lot of ruling peoples end up you know, usually they seem to come down from a really rugged area and take over the kind of soft, settled peoples and set them up as themselves up as rulers. Which there's speculation the Akkadians did to the Sumerians later on. Yes. Yeah, although I don't know if they were from a mountain region per se. I think they came from the other More direction. More from the desert, like northern Arabia. That would make sense, yeah. yes. The rugged desert way, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and definitely. And a few generations, you're crapping indoors, and that's how they get you. Yeah. Pretty much. Another theory is that they were a Dravidian people, which is the kind of, um, as I understand it, they think that those were the more southern Indian, darker-skinned type of Indian peoples, like the Tamils and whatnot. Tamil-speaking, I think. Yeah, Yeah, Tamils. There's weird relics of them, like in bits of Afghanistan or Iran again, which is, I think, where this theory comes from, of that language group being spoken. Makes sense. Makes sense. And... You know, civilization was kind of getting started in that area too, like the Indus Valley and Harappa type things. So Which, it is possible. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of speculation that they were Dravidian speakers and no one can read their language. So, so no we don't can know. Really know. Yeah, we don't know. But one thing in favor of that is the Sumerians referred to themselves as the black headed people. So whether that means black haired or dark complexioned or what, it's kind of up to interpretation. They seem to contrast themselves from other people as being the black-headed people. Also, we're doing wacky theories that are not quite as wacky as the Hollow Earth. In the opposite direction, I've heard one of the more plausible Sumerian language relation theories Uh is that it might be related to Chechen. Really? Hmm. And that there's some not entirely dismissed speculation that the people of the Caucasus Mountains might Uh be descended from the original Sumerians who just went north. Really? Up into the hills when the Acadians came, sort of like the Romano-British going to Wales. Uh-huh. Or people trying to find glacier. I mean, it's an easy, easily defensible, runawayable spot. So what you're telling me is that it was the Sumerians that captured Nikolai Shipoff so that he could um, escape and then find his freedom from serfdom? I think it might have been. <laughs> oh my god, unified theory of dead ideas. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mostly just since no one knows where the Caucasian people or the Chechens or any of them came or the Georgians came from either. So everyone always tends to link those together. Like everything is related to Basque. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Where the hell does anything come from anyway? So regardless of where the Sumerians came from, how did they develop the world's first cityized culture? And like I said, this goes hand in hand with the development of writing. So before 9000 BCE, humans were pretty much just nomadic hunter-gatherers, and there were very early symbols used even going back this far. There are these inscribed tick marks that they can find on bones from prehistoric times that may have been used to like track days of the month, kind of like how you would see like a a castaway in a movie being like, I've been here 62 days by counting the ticks right. on the cave wall or something. Also right around when agriculture was starting in the north end of our culture area here. Now, there are these records of like barley cultivation. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. So you would yep. want some notation on that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. When to plant and when to harvest. Yeah, exactly. So, and but the, the bones with the tick marks that I was referring to might not have come from this region sure. in particular. I just know prehistoric era generally some kind of symbols may have been used. And you could call that writing, but it's not really writing per se. Then around 9000 BCE, people in the broad Near East region start settling down to form permanent settlements. And there are some tantalizing questions as to why exactly. I mean, it's always assumed that it was that barley cultivation, the, the early agriculture that would get them to settle down. However, some very interesting, and I don't know if I quite believe it yet, but very interesting theories are coming up that suggest that it may have actually been more of a ritual reason why they started to form permanent settlements. Because places like um, Gobleki Teki, Gobleki, Gobekli Tepe. Thanks, Turkish. In, in yeah, ba back to Ataturk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Turkey, um, which is basically like a very, very early Stonehenge, suggests that people were actually building settlement or building permanent structures before they were even practicing agriculture. Hmm. So that's like, hmm, right? And Although, yeah. fun fact for our listeners is that area in southern Turkey and northern Iraq is where... Pretty much everything you as a European or an American think of as normal grains other than corn yeah. grew wild. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. the original source of where you'd think, oh, here's some wheat. Here's some barley. Yeah. It's... That's an interesting theory, that perhaps it was actually the ritual structures that originally got them to settle down. So they could, they could kind of like unify far-flung groups by having this shared structure. And then somebody had to take care of it, and then maybe they started growing the food locally as a permanent settlement to, to take care, you know, to feed the people who had to stay there and couldn't go roaming for food. That's possible. Another interesting thing is that the, why did they start actually doing the agriculture itself? You would think for food, for making bread and whatnot, but very early on, they find these pots that do not have the kind of carbon scoring that you would expect when they're baking something in it, <laughs> but they do find these residual traces of things you would expect from brewing beer. So that's another interesting theory that maybe they actually started uh, agriculture to get drunk. Or beer. <laughs> Which theory I've heard a lot, but now I'm curious, what are the telltale marks of beer in an urn? 
Um, I think it's I don't I don't I can't name them, okay. but it's like well, the I ingredients mean, that you've, you've you've cleared out our fermenting. I know that's that's what made me think sludge, of it. Like dried sludge. Yeah, because you use yeast either way, but the yeast does seem to be a lot more sludgy in beer making. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So very interesting questions. And listeners, if you're interested in more great stuff on like the Neolithic kind of period, you can check out our ginormous stone circles series, which was one of our first and still one of my all time favorites. And has a lot of great stuff like that in it. So, back to the development of writing. So, during this phase, starting as early as 10,000 BCE, there appears a system of something called tokens. And these may be, I don't know, like stone pebbles or clods of clay that would stand for things. And, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and imagine that they are Warhammer miniatures because that, was, <laughs> because that would be even better. <laughs> anyway, these tokens stand in for things in a system of very simple bookkeeping. So you may have, for example, your Imperial Guard mini standing for, I don't know, like oxen and your orcs for pigs. And that way you can keep track of who has, you know, how much of what. And later in this phase, you start to get picture systems developing in various parts of the world as well, such as Romania, China, the Indus River Valley in India, Egypt, and of course Mesopotamia. And so instead of having Warhammer minis, you're actually drawing pictures of your Warhammer dudes. And in Mesopotamia, the minis may even have been impressed into clay tablets to form an impression, so you get the negative of it in the clay. And along similar lines, you start to get the appearance of personal seals, which were basically stamps bearing a symbol that stands for you which would be impressed into the clay or other materials to represent you. And fair to say clay is a big deal in Mesopotamia compared to, say, a lot of these other areas or Egypt because there aren't many trees and not much rushes, but a lot of mud being in a river valley. I, a yes, river valley that's, def- by desert. that's definitely the impression that I get. The yes. impression? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. That's some incisive commentary yeah. right there. Oh, God. <laughs> So you get these steps toward writing, but it's still not writing per se. Then the cityization starts to take off. So by about 4000 BCE, back in the Fertile Crescent region of Mesopotamia, you get a culture that archaeologists called the Eubidians, who may or may not have been early Sumerians. We just don't really know. We can't really say. They're living in these Neolithic farming villages, and they start making some technological breakthroughs that enable greater productivity and population growth. For example, they get the potter's wheel. At first, the whole thing has to be turned by hand. Imagine turning a, like a stone potter's wheel by yeah. hand. That'd That's be crazy, not a great right? internship, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but soon, the kind with the axle develops, which then leads to like wheels with carts and stuff. Hey, guys, we could totally put this on a chariot. <laughs> exactly. What's a chariot? I don't know. <laughs> so you can just imagine how revolutionary that must have been. Revolutionary? parallel with this you get division of labor starting so you get craft specializations like these potters right you get rising productivity and you get irrigation starting up and the appearance of the plow and the cart and by 3500 bce all of this starts to drive the population levels up for example one of the settlements in the south uruk reaches 10,000 people and a powerful elite controlling a skilled labor force is suggested by the presence of early monumental structures. If you ever played Civilization, you know this is the point where you need to buy a granary. Yeah, always buy a granary. <laughs> right, exactly. Start out two militias, fortify them, get a granary. 
And then watch out for barbarians. Oh. <laughs> like the Akkadians will come and wipe out your civilization soon, but take over your writing system. Exactly. Well, yeah, and then you take the city back and it's all crap. <laughs> <laughs> now, Nick. Yes. At this point in history, we are starting to tread upon that terrifying structure, the name of which is the word in the world that you hate most, your nemesis word. The word that tortures you in your sleep. The word that you got wrong at the drunk spelling bee. Oh, the ziggurat. <laughs> yes. Hard to spell even when you're not sloshed. Yes. You know, I was just reading a book that was talking about ziggurats. It still looks wrong. In case anyone listening wants to know, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. Excellent. Not Z-I-G-G-A-R-U-T. In yes. his defense, he made it to the fi- what the penultimate round when he it was got like knocked three out. beers in at least yeah. four actually, four but and it was in. pints. But yeah. <laughs> you're a man of many talents. Yeah. So by this point, old shrines are developing into ever larger earthen platforms, with the temple at Uruk rising forty feet above the plain. Hmm. And over time, that will grow in immensity to the awesome and for Nick terrifying <laughs> structures that we now know as ziggurats. And the first proper one actually being built at Ur by Ur-Namu around uh, something like somewhere around 2000 BCE. I found different dates for it. These monumental structures are the dwelling places of the gods. And they come to dominate the city skyline as well as much of city life with an elaborate priestly hierarchy. And in true ancient fashion course there's no separation between state and religion and so each city is basically ruled by a priest king called an ensi at this point so by the start of the third millennium around 3000 bce you've got these fairly large urban centers with farmers with a network of connected irrigation canals and the farmers are supporting a significant number of skilled craftspeople like those potters producing specialized goods for trade and all of them are lorded over by this theocratic elite so you can imagine the amount of coordination that all of that would require and the bureaucratic headache if all you have to keep track of things are Warhammer minis and some doodles on, you know, some, you know, get some seals. This is true. We need some actual, like, syllabic writing on clay tablets and some temple prostitutes. I'm sh- temple <laughs> prostitutes! Business nuns! I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Somebody definitely said that at some point in history. Guys, not everybody's specialized figurine could be a three-headed dragon with wings and a huge dick. That's just, <laughs> it's getting confusing now. <laughs> so now we know what Anna's miniature looks like. Now, now we know what people, come on, you've been on DeviantArt. So there's a lot of controversy over exactly how writing emerged out of the tokens, pictures, and seals. But one way or another... Around roughly 3000 BCE, or just before, in Mesopotamia, true writing begins. The earlier system coalesces into a coordinated system with full sentences, and the earliest cuneiform still looks pretty pictographic, but it's there. And these cuneiform symbols are ideograms, kind of like Chinese, Mm -hmm. or at least a lot of the Chinese symbols are, meaning that each symbol stands for an idea, rather than a sound or a syllable. And consequently, it's still a little hard to tell if this is really the Sumerian language being recorded or not, because you can really record any language in a, in a you know, completely ideographic system. Right, see again Chinese. Right. The thing that looks like a cow represents a cow. The exactly. The thing that looks like yeah. a large hadron collider represents a large hadron collider. Exactly. 
But pretty soon there comes to be like gra- grammar particles represented. The thing that looks like a three-headed dragon represents beer. <laughs> <laughs> but only a certain type. That was a branding thing. Yeah. You start to get grammar particles that they decide how to represent the grammar particle based on puns, pretty much. Yeah, it, well, so, it does get complicated. The thing that looks like a the, or the thing that looks like an and. Uh-huh. Yeah, ex- well, yeah, kind of. I mean, so it's like, if you imagine, like, the word to in English, right? And then how are we going to represent the word to, like, go into the house, right? right. Well, it sounds like to, let's use that symbol. Yeah. So it's kind of like punning. And so you start to get these grammar particles, and at that point, you can clearly see the structure of the language, and it's definitely Sumerian. So there you have it. Writing begins in ancient Sumer as a means, basically, of keeping track of shit. And hot on the heels of cuneiform were Egyptian hieroglyphics, and archaeologically speaking, it's really basically dated in the same time period, but it's generally agreed by scholars to have started slightly later than cuneiform and due to its influence. I don't really know what the arguments are for that. But. These guys have a really great system of recording, but there's not enough birds. <laughs> <laughs> or people with bird heads. Um, the Harappan script of India, which is still undeciphered, like you mentioned, yeah. starts a little, a little bit, later, bit later, around like 2600 BCE or so. Chinese writing starts much later, around 1500 BCE, with the oracle bone script inscribed into turtle shells, which apparently shows a ritual origin to Chinese writing rather than the business origin that we just saw in Mesopotamia. And probably it was developed without any meaningful contact with any of these other cultures, which all had lots of contact with each other. Yes, yeah, it's hard not, it's hard to prove that they didn't have contact but to me, it seems like, it seems pretty believable. At that time in history, it would At that time be... in history and with the whole different purpose. Yeah. Yeah. But one place that definitely was not inspired by cuneiform was the Americas. Writing develops independently among the Olmecs somewhere in the mid-first millennium BCE. That's right, because we established Sumerians didn't come from Atlantis, whereas all the people in Mesoamerica did. <laughs> along with the Egyptians. Really great recording right. system, well, unless they, jaguars. Unless they went through the hollow earth to the other side. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Underwater panthers. Well, actually, the Aztecs and all the Mesoamerican peoples had lots of myths of coming out of caves. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, there you as go. As their origin stories. Yeah. So There you go. There you go. We deciphered it. Um, interestingly, though, the Norte Chico of modern-day Peru started using this counting system. I don't know if it's a complete grammatical writing system, but it's at knots? least... Yes, it's called kipu, or talking knots, which is really cool. Yes. It's like a system of knots tied on strings to denote numbers in a decimal 10 system. And you can these can be found at least by the first millennium CE, but possibly earlier. So, very cool. And I know that Andes Mountains culture area is one of those things where they keep on finding older and older and older stuff the more yeah. they look. It would be so, very believable yeah. that it was much older than that. Yeah. So any writing is one of these things that's just so useful and revolutionary that it keeps popping up again, again and again, independently in different parts of the world. But the first ones to cross that finish line were the Sumerians, who present their brilliant new invention to the World's Fair... <laughs> cuneiform right and reflecting cuneiform's origins in bookkeeping much of the earliest written documents are basically receipts and 
they pretty much boil down to so and so gave this many whatnots to who, so whatever. Um, so with these receipts, what they would do is they would they would write the message into a clay tablet and then break it in half, and each party would get half of it to keep mm. as proof that you know that it took place. So same message on either side, and oh, like I imagine receipt, so. Sort of. Yeah, I imagine so. Rather than having half the message, they must have written it twice. But I so. don't know honestly. So anyway, business origin, pretty boring, but also pretty cool. Um, you, you know, and Stuart Piggott, a scholar, goes so far as to describe cuneiform as, quote, the accidental byproduct of a strong sense of private property. <laughs> so that's, that's what caused writing to start. But it's not too long before it starts to take off for other uses. You get king lists, you get religious texts, and you get letters. So like I was saying before, people start writing to each other, and that's when you get this revolution in communications technology that makes the world feel like a village again. You stop painting dicks on your walls, and you stop listening to Nirvana, and you feel more in touch with people. Sprouted lettuce. We're trying to not have a little explicit symbol next to every episode on (laughs) iTunes. I could just see some, like, crusty old guy in Sumerian dress. Like, you know, when we started out, this was a technological innovation that was going to make sure that we had recordings and that we knew what was going on. And now the damn kids are just using it to show each other lettuce. This is not... It's just more alarming. It just would be hysterical. This is not what this technology was designed for. <laughs> I love it. So you call up I your like friend... I like Sumerian man voice, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just a stick in the mud. Why isn't my wife letting out the sheep? (laughs) (laughs) Damn it, woman. So suddenly you feel a little bit less alienated, thanks to letters. And at this point, I just have to geek out a little bit more one last time, because this really surprised me. It turns out the Mesopotamians even invented the envelope. What? Yes, the envelope for clay tablets. Was the envelope and, made out of clay? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh my god, how Flintstonesy is that? I mean, you would expect to see it on a cartoon, but never in like the real world. But so it would be a wrapping on another layer of clay on the outside that would completely cover the tablet on the inside, and on that envelope you would write like the recipient and maybe a summary of the contents. But sometimes they would even completely rewrite the entire message. And that was even used in some cases as a means of uh, verification. Sure. um, Like protection against tampering. Because um, one of the little known things, you always think of um, them baking their tablets. But actually, they may not have actually baked their tablets. It's just that a lot of the early tablets were found in places that were destroyed by fire and so got baked. Yeah, because like, if you don't have a lot of fuel, if you don't have a lot of trees, like you said, what are you firing this all with? That's a good point. I didn't think about that. This is what part dung, of it. It was, tree, I'm guessing. It well, was mostly yeah, dried. Yeah, the, I mean the the tablets were dried. Yeah, and you have plenty of. Sunlight. But you could, mm-hmm. but you could rewet it. Right. And so then you could smudge out the old writing and tamper with it and write in, you know, whatever you wanted. But if you suspected that somebody did that, then you could break the envelope get it the original message on the inside, and if it didn't say the same thing as it said on the outside, you know that somebody effed with your tablet. Right. Yeah. So I, I thought that was just like 
really, really cool. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm also imagining <laughs> tiny little return address clay labels that you wet and stick on the envelope. And... Oh, God. Why do they incise this picture of the little cat all the time? Right. I know they said they'd do it for free for 100 but it's not really worth it. <laughs> Thanks, Grandma. Uh, I also want to know, like, like the junk mail that they must have gotten from the yeah. tablet. Make our <laughs> lettuce grows taller. You... you... <laughs> Right. Or you may already have won one million shekels <laughs> or something like Chickpea that. flour is appropriate for every woman in the palace. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so anyway, to close out this episode, how about one last letter? So this comes again from the Royal Archives at Mari, and the topic once again is something quite relatable. This time, it's getting chewed out by your boss. <laughs> So this letter is entitled, Too Many Gods. At least in the book that I read, they gave each one of the titles, right? So, Too Many Gods. So the letter says, The work on the deities that you are commissioning, the subject of the message that you have conveyed to me via Suea, who would have been the messenger, right? Suea has set matters before me. You are commissioning the making of six gods. About the six gods that you are commissioning. Well, are they beyond the ten gods already there? <laughs> Are your servants afraid and therefore do not tell you about your project? Watch out. <laughs> Watch out. For what use are the gods that you plan to make? Where is your silver? Where is that gold of yours to make these gods? What kind of victorious campaign have you undertaken? Which town has agreed to give you 10 to 20 pounds of silver as substitute for its country's tribute or income? As for you, the silver is not at your disposal, yet you would commission the making of gods. And then there's several fragmentary lines. And then he picks up again, chewing out the guy. Why would you commission the making of six gods? These gods that you plan to make require one month of festival sacrifices. What? That's <laughs> actually there. WTF. Yeah. yeah, right. Where are the oxen and sheep that you must keep providing for sacrifice at festivals? Here you keep writing to me about oxen and sheep saying, I have no sheep or lambs, yet you would still fill the town with gods here, when however many sheep now available hardly suffice for sacrifice to them. How could you do this? Have you no advisor who can counsel you? <laughs> Mari is full of gods. No other city is as full of gods as is Mari. And even Asher, which is full of gods. Since the former kings who lived in the land, they provided for the gods as follows. Flower offerings were regular before them. What then? Why would you commission more of these gods? Recently, you commissioned the making of Belit Agade. I had not had you make these gods. Yet you returned to the subject. With no flower and sheep whatsoever, without my permission, you would commission the making of gods of gold. You alone must bear the burden of this project. <laughs> <laughs> and that is written from Samsi Adu, an Amorite mm. conqueror, to his youngest son, Yasma Adu, who was given the throne of Mari. Mm. So, dad and son, but also, like, boss king right. to lesser king well, the kids know. these days used to be that we just would erect about 10 gods and now they're only known to 16 <laughs> exactly but it also sounds like where are you going to get the tax revenue for this bonding bill to put up the gods <laughs> exactly right how are you going to pay for your increase in health care mr yeah. president 
<laughs> I'm starting to think separation of church and state is necessary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's time to draw this episode to a close. So thanks, Nick and Anna, for being on the show once again. Mm -hmm. And listeners, remember, if you like what we're doing here, if you want to hear more about uh, cuneiform, as we have much, much more to talk about, uh, next episode we'll start our role-playing episodes to really immerse you in the culture. Why not support us on Patreon? You can go to www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod, and you can even get your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. Let the record state that we are in Brandon's spiffy new podcasting dungeon, but at the moment it only has one god sitting on a dresser, <laughs> unless right. the gong is also a god. We need how much, much more gods. Yeah. How much a month would it take to right. get six new gods in this <laughs> podcasting dungeon? I, that, I'm, I'm not in that tax bracket. Come yeah. on, people. We need some sheep. We need some cattle. We need some gold. Come on. Yeah. Our For family. 20 pounds of silver a month? Yes. And two oxen a month. I don't know if Patreon lets you do that yet. <laughs> I don't know if Patreon will let us charge people in terms of shekels, but <laughs> which are measures of barley at this point. Yeah. That's true. If we're going to make the Sumerian beer for future episodes, we need some shekels, folks. Yeah. Come on, people. Send us your barley. So, a little addendum to this episode. One thing we forgot to talk about is, how did this dead idea die? Well, uh, the death of cuneiform came about in four stages corresponding to waves of cultural change and conquest. First was its youth and heyday. As we mentioned, cuneiform was invented for Sumerian and then adapted to Akkadian and carried on in full force through the Babylonian periods. It was also adapted to Assyrian, Hittite, Ugaritic, and Elamite. And by the way, for all we poke fun at the Elamites, they were actually pretty interesting people. And if you want to learn more, the Lesser Bonapartes have an entire series devoted to them. So check that out. Uh, amongst all these peoples... Cuneiform flourished, and even after Sumerian became a dead language no longer spoken, cuneiform still thrived vigorously. It was used for administrative, temple, and private use. By the 6th century BCE, however, it was gradually being marginalized by Aramaic, written with the Aramaic alphabet, and recorded by the sepiru, or leather scribe. And this leather scribe does not seem to have enjoyed the same prestige as the clay scribe. The leather scribe did not carry the, you know, the gravitas of a venerable millennia-old tradition kind of thing. He was looked on, he was looked on kind of the way a blogger is today, like a, a, technically a writer, but not really, not in the same class as Hemingway or Shakespeare or something like that. Kind of looked down upon. So second, the second phase of the death of cuneiform, the Persian conquest of Mesopotamia by Cyrus the Great in 539 BCE changed the perception of cuneiform. The Persians did not sweep away cuneiform, but they altered it. The old Persian script looks a lot like Mesopotamian cuneiform and was clearly inspired by it, but it was something new invented by the Persians and it is considered a form of cuneiform, but it was a new system. And it seems to me that this would have eroded the prestige of the clay scribe, who could no longer claim a millennia-old tradition. And even the ones who were still writing in Mesopotamian you know, cuneiform who could claim that tradition, I mean, it just, side by side with that, it wouldn't be the same. It would start to fracture that prestige. And this would start to put the leather scribe and the clay scribe on equal footing. 
bloggers and Hemingways would now be seen equally as writers. And moreover, given the clunkiness of forming and holding and storing heavy clay tablets, cuneiform by this point was starting to feel rather dated, kind of like an old-fashioned typewriter compared to a sleek new word processor or something like that. And third, the Macedonian conquest by Alexander the Great further atrophied the use of cuneiform. The Macedonians used the Greek alphabet in their administration and dealings, and with the prominence of Aramaic among the Mesopotamian peoples, cuneiform came to be used only really by temple staff. You know, those crotchety geriatric hangers-on who weren't able or willing to change, just like grandma who still doesn't get how to text message, that kind of thing. And then, finally, with the Roman conquest, cuneiform ceased to be used altogether, and the last known cuneiform text was inscribed in 75 CE. And at cuneiform's funeral, everyone sang its praises, but no one had any intention of going back to it. It was a thing of a bygone era by that point, edged out by younger, more nimble forms of writing. However, much like the craftsmanship of the good old days of Grandma and Grandpa, it was built to last, and the dried clay tablets of the old archives and libraries survive, outlasting almost every other form of writing that we've ever done, I guess other than carving in stone, so that archaeologists now have turned up nearly half a million tablets, and most of them are broken, but there was so much repetition and copying in the tradition that a break in one tablet is often able to be filled in by another, and that's why we know so much about the world's oldest cityized culture. I mean, completely unlike the vines and snapchats of today's youth, which nobody's going to be able to read in five years, much less 5,000, Grandma and Grandpa's cuneiform letters survive to tell us of their days, and this series is going to be all about that world. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, I got a big announcement for you, and that is that starting next week, we are going to be moving to a new publishing schedule. That's right, uh, we're still going to keep great content coming to you every single week, but it's going to be structured just a little bit differently. And what's going to be different is this. So the main series of Focus, the epic series that we've, has become our standard. It, it, was, <laughs> it was supposed to be the the unusual anomaly, but it's become our standard because they're just too much fun. The, the main epic series is going to be put out every other week, and we're no longer going to worry about time limits on the episodes either. We've been trying to keep things to an hour. Well, we're not going to worry about that anymore. It could be an hour, an hour and a half, whatever it takes to talk about the topic and do it right. Somewhere in there, you know, we've already been heading this way with a lot of episodes anyway, so it's just going to make the main series a little bit beefier. And in addition to being epic in terms of number of episodes, it's also going to be epic in terms of episode length. I don't think we're going to quite Dan Carlin out and do like a six-hour episode ever, but you never do know what might happen. So anyway, um, meanwhile, at the same time that the epic is coming out every other week, in the off weeks, we're going to do something a little different. And these might be shorter episodes, could be as short as, say, 15 minutes, um, up to an hour or who knows? Again, not worried about length. And these could be standalone one-shots, or they could form their own series, or they may even be related to previous stuff that we've talked about, but, you know, couldn't fit into the original format. For example, I really want to do some stuff on the Slovenes, which is actually the ethnicity on my mom's side of the family, but which 
It didn't really feature in the Balkans episode of the Balance of Power series that we just finished up, and I can't figure out why <laughs> why none of my sources mentioned them. So I kind of want to dig into that. That's something coming around the pipe. Um, I also want to do some stuff on Japan, uh, where I lived for five years, and so that should be fun. And finally, I've accumulated a bunch of Public Domain Theater 3000 articles that just never really fit into a series, but are really awesome and worth doing. So they might not even be directly related to a dead idea. They might just give that quirky sense of the times that you have come to expect from us. But anyway, that should introduce some welcome variety into this show and, you know, kind of also toss a bone to any listeners out there who prefer a shorter style format once in a while. Uh, so that's the new plan for the publishing schedule, and we're trying this as a means of continuing to deliver great content to you on a regular basis while attempting to actually work out some kind of reasonable work-life podcasting balance. I mean, things for me have gotten way out of whack lately, to be honest. And I found myself getting up at 5, sometimes even at 4 in the morning to research or write for dead ideas, and yet still feeling like I'm just barely able to keep on track with the episodes, getting them out on time. I've been having to pass up invitations from friends and family in order to work on the show. It, you know, it it's a lot of work. It's great. I love it. And I wouldn't do it if I didn't have a passion that just lights the fire under my ass to make each series better and better but it does take a lot of time, and with the episodes that, you know, have no co-hosts, I don't have to schedule with people, or like the PDT3Ks where I don't read them beforehand, that helps a lot with the time factor. So we're going to be exploring that in the off weeks. And, you know, you get the variety that I was talking about, too, so hopefully it's a win-win kind of plan here. And podcasting, by the way, is is damn expensive, too. For listeners out there who are not themselves podcasters, here's a little inside secret. It costs money. <laughs> and almost almost nobody turns a profit at this either. I mean, it's really deceiving when you see every show with their own Patreon account, and you don't really know how much goes into making a good quality show. And it, it costs a lot. I, I've sunk hundreds and hundreds of my own dollars into recording equipment and sound absorption tiles and domain registration and web hosting and a video camera for our experimental YouTube videos that we were doing for a while, art supplies for the portraits. I mean, and the list goes on and on. And it's all just to keep providing better and better quality because that's who I am and that's what I want to do with this show. And it's not about making a profit. Every single penny goes right back into the show. But it would be nice to at least break even so that we're, you know, not operating in a net loss and so that, you know, this project can be sustainable. So if you do like what we're doing here, then definitely cruise on over to www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod and contribute. $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. You can see lots of examples on our supporters page at our website at www.deadideas.net. And if you are already a supporter of the show, thank you. You may have noticed that our Patreon perks are more streamlined now. One thing that's gone away are the episode notes, and that was more of a just another thing that was just sucking up time, getting those episode notes whipped into shape. And it seemed like nobody was really reading them anyway, so we just... You, if you are someone who would like to see the episode notes, you are very much welcome to just email us at deadideaspod at gmail.com, and we'll send them to you. Whatever we may have, messy though they may be, you're welcome to them. So, there you go. 
Okay, that is it for the announcement. We'll see you next week for something different. I'm not even sure what that'll be yet. <laughs> so, see you next week. Yeah.